for me, I believe that that is really the foundation of where we lead from is being able to make sure that we ourselves are flourishing and that we're taking care of ourselves and that that has a direct impact on the teams we lead and the cultures that we're a part of. Welcome back to the Faculty Factory podcast, Friends. I'm Kim Skorupski, your host, and I'm really happy to be talking today with my friend and colleague and frequent Faculty Factory podcast flyer, Kimara Ellison. Hi, Kimara. Hi, Kim. It's great to be with you again. Well, I just love seeing your face. We were just talking, folks, before we started that Kimara is one of those people, very rare gems in the world, who you see her walking down a hallway at a AAMC Group on Faculty Affairs Conference, and she just seems to float. She's just always cool, calm, collected, and she's the person I want with me in a dark alley or anywhere. She's just, <laughs> I, feel, I feel like so safe and comforted and like she's got this. Well, if you don't know Kimara Ellison and you're new to the Faculty Factory podcast, you're going to want to check out episode number 26. Yes, way back in the day, almost four years ago, well, three years ago, when Kimara shared her conversation and her experience as the Associate Vice President of Talent Strategy and Faculty Affairs at the Medical College of Wisconsin, right? Yes. Kamara. So this was back in July of 2019. Here we are going on three years later. And guess what? Life has happened and things have changed and moments have occurred and seasons have come and gone and you find yourself in a new phase of life. And I just want to preface this um, this whole episode with just to prepare you as a listener, Kamara has put a lot of thought into this her episode because you know she said a lot has been going on and she didn't really know like how to focus her thoughts. But boy, wait do you see and hear about all the wisdom and the nuggets? And I cannot wait for her to get into it. So Kamara, please tell everybody what you're doing now in your current role, and let's just get into some of the you know some of the topics that we that you propose that we discuss today. That sounds fantastic. I am so excited to have this conversation today, and it is such an honor for me to be back with you, Kim, and to be among uh, all of our uh, faculty factory uh, colleagues. So I am currently serving as the National Director for Partnerships with the Kern National Network for Caring and Character in Medicine. I took this role on about a year ago. I'm excited to talk through a little bit of the journey that brought me to that point. Let me just say that the Kern National Network is currently a network of seven academic medical centers uh, across the country that is dedicated to advancing human flourishing within the profession of medicine. They have been in existence for just about six years now, and we are on the verge of I like to call it rolling out KNN 2.0 and thinking about everything we have learned uh, in our formative years and thinking about how we can open our network and have a larger impact within academic medicine. And so I was brought on to think about that expansion, how to amplify the work that the schools have been doing so far and how to get other voices from the health ecosystem into the conversation. So that is my role. So This is so cool because when I got your reply back to my invitation to come on back to the faculty factory, I didn't, I had never, I'm like, what is this Kern National Network? You know, you say it's it's KNN. So I think it's fascinating. I can't wait to hear more about, as you talk about what you're doing, um, like how this evolved. This is just another example of one of these cool things that pops up that a lot of us don't know about, you know, how how it began. And it sounds to me from what I've looked at, it's a great um, symbiotic relationship because you're all about wellness. And in, in your prior podcast with us, you were one of the things, one of the many things I, I really uh, respect about you is your use of language. And you talked about pain points and fear from faculty and the, the relationships and, and how important it was to be kind and persistent and, 
you really spent a lot of time fleshing out for us faculty well-being at University of Wisconsin in two themes, a personal well-being area and a systemic well-being. So it sounds like this current national network and you being there was this perfect union of you being able to make an impact and, and deriving not only personal meaning and fulfillment, but really um, contributing that meaning to, to the KNN. So I'm just, I think it's so interesting. And I guess I'll stop there before you go into, did you want to say anything about that or? No, other than that, I would just say, Kim, it was an opportunity that I didn't even know could have existed and has been beautiful for me to think about how to take something that I was doing at more of a local level, if you will, and think about being able to take those those ideas and things that we tested for so long at MCW and think about how it could apply to larger uh, ecosystems than I'd been a part of before. Right. So this, all right, let's get into this because you have a lot of really juicy stuff here. I I asked you to think about this pivot. So this was a a good example of a career pivot. And in academic medicine, we all, uh, faculty members and leaders, have many, many opportunities to add leadership roles at our existing institutions or other leadership roles. And it's always that, as you talked about in your last episode, you know, pain points, a pain point, do I stay or, or should I go? And if I'm going to stay, how do I dig deeper? And how do I, um, how do I might do my best work? So how, what are some of the things you struggled with in this? Oh, maybe it wasn't even a struggle with this pivot. Like how did you arrive or, you know, what are the things you, um, chewed on and really spent a lot of time thinking about? It was a tremendous struggle for me. I had evolved from the last time I was here, I had evolved to an interim vice president role, which, you know, as far as my own thinking and probably that of larger society was it. That was the pinnacle. It was where I was supposed to be shooting for. And when this opportunity arrived, I struggled greatly with whether or not it was something that I should lean into. I knew theoretically that I was passionate about the concepts of the KNN, and the the idea that I could be part of that was really fascinating to me and drew me. But there were a lot of things that were keeping me anchored in the previous role. I think probably chief among them, Kim, was what I like to call a scarcity mentality. The sense that that this could not work out. And perhaps the role that I was in, the interim vice president for HR and faculty affairs at the time, that that somehow was a more sure thing. And I really, really wrestled with that until I realized that it was a fallacy to believe that any role that we are in is going to last forever or is going to remain something that would be fulfilling to us. And that it was really more about wanting to remain comfortable and a fear of taking the risk or stretching myself. And from a scarcity perspective, instead of a growth mentality, right, which says, oh, there's so many decisions and there's so many things that we can do in life. You know, I kept thinking, if I make this career pivot, this is it. It's over. And what if it's the wrong decision? Instead of understanding that I could make this decision for myself today and then tomorrow I can make a different one. And then the day after that, I could make a different one. And so I really had to wrestle and I mean, wrestle, wrestle in my soul. Uh, with coming to the point of understanding that life is about opportunity. And this was an opportunity being presented to me. A lot of courage there. I like that reflection on scarcity and that, that fear that we all have of like, am I pushing it too far? Am I pushing my luck? Why I got it. I got I'm sitting pretty here. Why would I mess things up for me? So that to me talks about the courage, the unknown and then the grounding faith. I love how you you arrived at that point of just optimist, optimistic, and and realistic. If it doesn't work out, so what? What's the worst case scenario? I'll go on to another thing, something else that that knowledge and faith and confidence of knowing that there's something else out there. That is just that's a wonderful uh, mindset. And it's not my natural bent. When I was in college, I heard a speaker who had challenged us to come up with a life motto. 
And I, the life model that I decided on was choose adventure. And I chose that because I know that my natural bent is to stay safe and to stay comfortable. And I wanted something that I could always put out in front of me that would say, okay, Kamara, given these two options, which one is choose adventure? And making this career pivot was certainly choose adventure. Love it. What else did you, did you struggle with anything else when you were making this decision other than the scarcity mentality and getting out of your head? I think the other thing that I really struggled with was this opportunity came to me in the midst of the global pandemic that we've all been experiencing. And I had found myself in a very visible leadership role in helping to form and shape uh, the academic medical center's response to COVID. And particularly because I was serving as the, the really the chief people officer at the time, my role was to make decisions that would take care of the people of MCW. And my heart has always been to serve the people of MCW. And this was going to take me out of that role and remove me from the service role that I had been in for a couple of decades at MCW. And so I had to wrestle with both the larger issues of leaving at a time that I was wondering if if it was the right time to make that move. And then I had a team of leaders and individuals within human resources and faculty affairs that I had truly come to love and deeply care about. And I knew that there were elements of my leadership that were helping them to hang on in a very, very difficult time. And so I was not relishing the thought of letting them know that I was making a different decision and moving on. And I struggled as a leader with whether or not I was leaving them in the lurch. And so there did have to be, again, some evaluation on my part of, you know, when do you make decisions for your team? And then when do you make decisions for yourself? And without going into all of the details, I will tell you that in that evaluation process, I realized that this pivot was a decision both for myself and my team. And it was really an important thing to do. Wow. Love it. I, Chris Rungi uh, at MCW senior associate provost, or maybe she has a new title up the provost ladder. <laughs> Dr. Rungi is one of our favorite people as well. And so we, she's also a frequent flyer on the faculty factory podcast. And I, I can only imagine um, that process of, having to break that news to people and you feel like part of you is like you're letting them down, but you're also excited and proud and you want them to be proud of you. You don't want them to be disappointed and you don't certainly don't want to leave them high and dry. And so that's very, very emotional. So I can appreciate that, um, that struggle that we all, that we all have. Yeah. And you know, Kim, because it was a pivot and I love that word that you used, I was also, I'd love to say that I didn't care, but I was also worried what people were going to think because I did not make a decision that necessarily corresponded with other people's plan for my life. Mm -hmm. And so there there was a lot of questioning of what I was doing. There were moments in which people were trying to uh, get me to make a different decision. And I had to process through the fact that not everyone was going to agree and not everyone thought this was a wise career move. Again, look at you back. I can't help it. I look at you and I'm seeing courage, this courage, this idea that I don't care what other people think about me. We talk so much with early career faculty members in our leadership programs of how in academic medicine, through our PhDs and MDs and all our advanced training, we follow this prescribed formula for thou shalt do this. You just kind of, not say mindlessly, but you just kind of truck through the stages first this, then that, then this, then that. And, and we kind of always have these expectations of what our professors and our mentors and our parents and our colleagues think of us and judge us and what school we're going to and what fellowship and what residency and what training and what institution. And that those ticker tape beliefs of expectations of me. I remember when I was in graduate school, no, my postdoc, one of my mentors, when I presented some opportunities I had, and I was kind of excited by it. I remember what he said so disappointed me. He said, well, I don't know what that move would do for me. And I thought, 
it was just kind of, I remember leaving his office feeling do for you. And I really had to wrestle with that thinking, am I supposed to be, am I disappointing him? And he doesn't think that, but then I was kind of disappointed in him that he was thinking about himself. And I'm thinking, you you've already arrived. You, I'm just starting yeah. off. And so again, courage and kudos to you for putting all those voices aside and saying, yes, and um, there are different ways. There are different journeys, right? The careers in academic medicine are not linear. It's like a, it's a buffet, which it's a kind of zigging and zagging. And only we, and we're the holding the pen as we're authoring our life story. You know, why give that pen to somebody else? So you're so courageous. I love it. I know you have another lesson um, about that pivot point. I think the only other lesson that I would put out there is that I would have told you that I didn't think resources mattered to me, that I was one of one, that, oh, I, I'm going to follow what my passions are. But to be honest with you, uh, I was making a decision that also may not have the same financial resources attached to it as the other trajectory I was on. And so I wrestled with what I would consider to be very basic human sorts of instincts of, but I could make more money or, or is there more prestige by having a vice president title or this or that? And so it was a real wrestling and this wasn't just a day or two of, you know, figuring it out and and squelching the voices. This was a lot of real deep uh, soul searching and having really good people around me, Kim, that were cheering me on and uh, helping me understand which voices I should listen to. I love it. I think after COVID, so many people, you know, we're hearing about this great resignation and all these um, forces that have really made a lot of us kind of snap our heads and go, what's really important in life and how quickly it moves and how much we take for granted. So again, yeah, it's hard to like turn your head away from Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You do need food, shelter and basic protection and the basic stuff. So it, it is kind of, I can, I can imagine how, um, especially in academic medicine, you know, we, we think of faculty who worked so hard to achieve these credentials and then to maybe risk, risk giving that all, all up to go work for a nonprofit or yeah. to go, you know, volunteer. And uh, that's, that does it. I can't help but think I'm looking at you and I'm just seeing so much courage. Oh, my I'm a year on the other side. And I will tell you that I'm very, very glad I made the decision. <laughs> Yes. Good. So yeah, that's, that's true. Let's, let's put this in context. When did this decision happen? I missed that pivot. When did I officially joined a year ago this month? So it would have been, it would have been, you know, the the previous fall that I was, was wrestling with. Okay, good. That puts it, that helps us out. Now let's talk about um, your key lessons learned uh, because you, you, I love some of the stuff in here and I think this is going to be powerful for our audience. So I think there were a number of things that I learned through this process. And I might just say I'm actively learning because a year isn't actually all that long of a period of time for some of these things. But first would be that your skills and your gifting are transferable. I think I had, again, fallen into a little bit of that fallacy that, you know, I'm I'm good in this context and that's the place that I'm good instead of understanding that perhaps those are things that make me who I am and that those skills go with me wherever I go. And it's not about where you do things, but it's about how you do things and that that can be applied across a multitude of contexts. That's been very powerful for me uh, to think through and realizing that all of the moments and the experiences that we have had in our careers personally are oftentimes preparing us for the moments that we find ourselves in. Mm-hmm. I have been a student of leadership since I was a teenager. I'm one of those people that just can't get enough of watching other great people do what they do. And I, I love to just see the modeling and the lessons. Uh, I, I try to just absorb as much as I possibly can. And I think leadership or leadership identity formation is a deeply and personal 
internal evolution for us, which I think is why I love to watch the practices and the lifestyles of people that I find to be really strong leaders. And so I have been fortunate enough to be leading in some form or fashion since my early 20s. And then all of a sudden, I found myself in an interim VP role two months before a global pandemic hits. I'm a member of a small working group that was supposed to look a little bit at what was going on in China with this odd virus over there and make sure that our pandemic plan was up to date. And then here we are, right? We know we know what happened. And so I then found myself in a very, very visible, uh, forward-facing role with, you know, if you will, thousands of people looking to me to help give them direction and hope. And I learned a tremendous amount in that situation, Kim, that I think gave me then the, the courage, as you've been saying, to make the final decision that I did. And I realized that it was a culmination of all of these experiences that helped me know how to show up on any given day and lead uh, along with others our response to, to COVID. And so that for me was a powerful coming together, if you will, and uh, unlike anything I've ever done to date. Uh, and what I realized in that, Kim, was that I brought Kamara the person as well as Kamara the professional to that leadership role, probably in a way that I'd never done before to that point. And it was that level of vulnerability, as Brene Brown would, would tell us, that I think really resonated with the people of MCW and, again, helped me understand that I was probably prepared for a larger, more national-oriented role. I agree with you that authenticity and being genuine and vulnerability is where we all had to land during COVID. Yeah. Because we're so used to, how you doing? Great. Happy, healthy, blessed. Never been better. Life's just great. Beat you keen. When we all know, no, we're not okay. And it's okay to not be okay. And let's kind of get real here for a minute. Let's just stop sugarcoating this. No, it's it's not okay. And I'm not okay. And so as a leader, I love that you talk about that vulnerability because that that immediately lowers the temperature of the room. And I think it allows people to go from this defensive mode of, I got to be on, I have to be on people looking at me. I'm the fill in the blank. I'm the assistant professor, the associate professor, the Dean, the vice president, the leader, the chair, the division director, this, you know, fellowship director, whatever. And I have to keep it together. Well, guess what? Sometimes the best, the best way to keep it together is to say, I'm having, a, I'm having a tough time here. And all of a sudden people go, Oh, good. You too. Me too. Right. right. And, and if we don't leave with that of saying, I, Hey, I'm just doing my best here, but I'm struggling here and I don't know this and I messed up. And that to me says, Whew, it's an ex, it's almost a visceral exhale when you're with people that they go, great, great this is going to be a real thing and not this phony baloney of let's all pretend that we're all just, you know, getting the papers and getting the grants and having no trouble. And we got our home life figured out and the kids in school, it's not an issue. Let's not talk about it. Put our heads in the sand and pretend it's not there and just soldier on. That's, that's good. And it's time and place, but you know what, after this for two years, no, you know, so I love that you talk about that and, that you are a student of leadership and that you your authenticity it always shows through. So thanks for reminding us of being vulnerable. And it's interesting, Kim, because I think we know that better now than we did at the beginning when we were also, you know, figuring out what it was we were supposed to be doing. And one of the things that was really interesting to me that I am still sort of thinking through in my mind when I made the decision to, to leave and the, the leadership of MCW and leaders that I'd been working with were so generous in their support of me. And leader after leader said, we kept coming in every day because we knew Kamara was there and she was going to be with us. Now, that wasn't the only reason, right? But there was this, there was this idea of hope. And to this day, when I am rare, you know, in the Medical College of Wisconsin building, walking around because my offices are still located there, 
people will stop me and say, you gave us hope. And you know, what's interesting. I gave them hope, Kim, by just simply showing up as who I am. There wasn't another magical formula there. There wasn't something. I just showed up as Kamara as honestly and as authentically as I could and tried to have wisdom where I needed to have strength, right? People can't, we we do have to, as leaders, we have to balance uh, that transparency and that authenticity in the sense of we need to know when strength is appropriate and when vulnerability is appropriate. So that that wise reasoning that comes into what we do as leaders, but it's been a powerful learning lesson for me. Tomorrow. Oh my gosh. Wow. So yes, just showing up, that's another great reminder that being there and people seeing you, even if you don't have, you're not walking around handing out $50 bills or Starbucks gift coupons or free parking passes and uh, all the answers to all the problems. You're there. People know you're there. You see them. They see you. They know you care. That That is so important. And again, I love the reminder of we have to do the work. You know, we can't just say, throw our hands up and saying, I don't know what's happening here. That will not evoke confidence in us if we don't do this sense of non-anxious presence. But I love that your physical presence was a reminder. Someone's on it. Someone sees us. They see us. Uh, She's here. Uh, He's here. So that's a good reminder for us in academic medicine that, you know, just being there, being present Mm -hmm. physically and then emotionally that you exhibit such mature emotional intelligence. I just love it. Kimara Ellison, love it. Okay. I also thought we thought, you know, if you could have a do over, I mean, mm-hmm. sometimes people go, oh, you know, armchair quarterbacking this situation or any situation. You know, I'm trying to think of faculty members who email email us on the on the facultyfactory.org website saying, could you talk about this or that? Or how do we recover from bad decisions or burned relationships? Or um, can you think of a, a couple do overs that maybe you, you know, really wish you would have done differently or? turn that into some advice to other people who are on the fringe of making some pivots or decisions? Yeah, absolutely. I, I, when, when someone says, if you could have a do-over, what would you do over? I feel like there were so many things that, that came into my mind. And yet at the same time, there's this part of me that knows that all of those things help to shape me and that every experience has something to teach us and prepare us for the next. And there is a philosophy in practical wisdom that talks about you know, each day being better than you were the day before. And for me, that is, that is success. It's not that I've got it perfect because perfection is just not attainable, but am I, am I better? Am I making smarter, wiser choices than I, than I did the day before? And that, you know, so I think for me, most of my do-overs would be about my inner life and my inner practices. I wish I would have found security in my voice and who I am sooner in my career. I think I, allowed imposter syndrome and wondering if I belonged and wondering if this was right or that was right to probably take over more often. I knew how to teach it to others all day long and I knew how to help prepare others. But at the end of the day, inside at night, when I went home, I think I was still really struggling uh, with those things. And I didn't really realize that until these last few years. It's been very powerful for me to come, I think, more fully into who I am and Uh, in my worldview, who I was created to be and the impact I was created to have. I think real practically as as a leader in from an external perspective, I wish I would have figured out how to truly care for my team sooner than I did. When I was, you know, growing up as a leader, there was a lot about management, not always so much about leadership. And I, I don't know that I always prioritized my team in the way that I needed to. I wish I would have listened better. I think at times I wish I would have listened more authentically and been more present, more present with my team and a little less uh, frenetically concerned about everything that needed to get done because there's always a lot that needs to get done. Can you give us a little example of that distinction? Because when I was reading through your notes, I said, oh yeah, bingo. She's so right about the management versus leadership. Like what does, if someone's listening to you right now thinking this sounds great, but what does that look like? Cause they might be wondering, am I doing that? 
what does someone who's really focused perhaps too much on managing look like? What is that person doing maybe or not doing as opposed to someone who has understood and made the swing over to being a leader and not a manager? Can you think of an example? Yeah, I would be happy to give an example, Kim. I, I like to think of it as maybe how versus why. So if I am if I'm stepping forward in a management mode, and there are moments for that, if I'm stepping forward in a management mode, I am typically telling people how to do what needs to be done. And I am usually very involved in the details of how that is getting done. And I am focused on those details and the approach or the step-by-step process that is being taken to accomplish something. If I am stepping forward in leadership or as a leader, I am concerned with the why, the vision, the strategy, and then the ultimate outcome. So I am stepping forward to say, we are going to need to accomplish this because, and here's what we want to have accomplished at the end. And then all of that space in between as a leader I'm there to help support, get obstacles out of the way, empower my team, but I'm not really concerned with, are they doing step one and then step two and then step three and then step four? Um, My belief is that when we're leading, we're surrounding ourselves with with teams of people who are experts that we've hired uh, to do a job. And so as a leader, we sort of get out of the way and we are there to help them do their job well. You nailed it. That's that's sometimes so tough. And I, I think that's where the, those of us who are maybe more controlling and all about the details, we get very rigid in our SOPs, our standard operating procedure. This is the way we do th- something. And those are good. SOPs are good because they help. If I'm thinking of somebody in a, in a cockpit, an airplane will tell you, yeah, right. SOPs are pretty important. Or if you're going to do a surgery, pretty important. And acknowledging that when you're bringing new people, new knowledge and resources and tools and expertise, someone may say, yes, and I have a way that might make this even better. That is the letting somebody else own that process. Oh, okay. Now I'm going to step back and say, I'm so glad you're here on the team. Wow. Do what you do. Um, What do you need? So that you're right is, and I feel like I revert to management mode when I'm in stress or like in the Myers-Briggs parlance, when you're in the grip, what I feel like, ah, everything's spinning out of control. Then my default is to go, all right, if I'm losing control, what do you do? I want to get control of everything. And so I know that I'm in stress when I start going into micromanagement mode, but you know, like you said, I, we're going to do one through 10. Well, who's doing seven? Who's doing seven? What happened to seven? I'm like, oh, right. we rolled it into five or we're going to do it in eight. Chill. Well, and the interesting thing, Kim, is that I think, you know, so if there are people that I led or managed earlier in my career, they would probably say you were a manager, not a leader, because that was my default. And there is a lot of reward uh, from, from higher up for managing well. And there is risk in leading because someone could skip step seven. Now, we again, we always have to bring wisdom to the table, right? We're not talking about, I mean, if we're in a surgery, we need to make sure, like you said, if we're flying an airplane or we're conducting a surgery, but there's leadership even in that in terms of, you know, not getting so embroiled in the details and empowering the people around you to to meet those steps and then having wisdom to know what are the checks and balances that you put in place. And that's where the leadership comes in instead of controlling the whole environment around where it happens. And I sincerely wish I would have figured that out uh, much sooner, but management is easier. It is easier to lean in and bring out your checklist and say, did everyone do everything they're supposed to do today? And then go to the person who did it and say, why didn't you do this well? Uh, leading is, it takes a level of, I think, sophistication and nuance that's far more difficult. But I would argue that our workforces today are hungry for that and likely will not tolerate a whole lot of management. Uh, People want to be led, not managed. You are so right, Kimara. And you're especially, I think, within 
up and coming generations of future yes. leaders. I'm seeing a lot of literature pointing to this and we can see it in just work patterns and in social media that this is kind of what the expectation is. If you're not going to tell me punching in where I'm going to, to work, where my lunch hour is, when my restroom break is going to be, that's just not going to fly. And especially after this pandemic where so many people you know, were you know, smushed back to stay home and can then demonstrate they're, they're very productive without someone peering over the shoulder and ringing a, you know, a bell to say, all right, you can go get a sip of water now. That's just not going to fly. And one other thing that popped into my head as you were talking was because I'm reflecting as, you know, why do I do this? And why, you know, the ease, the management versus leader. And I feel like a lot of it is fear-based. Me, I'm fear-based. I feel like that when I lash out or when I go into, you know, controlling mode, it's because I, it comes from fear. I fear that I will be judged from others as not being fill in the blank competent, yes. a good leader. I'm not going to be successful here. I'm not as good as my predecessor. I've reached the pinnacle of my per- career. I've like, you know, gotten to the top of my, and I'm done. I'll never go further than this. All those fears and the stories, the ticker tape beliefs I'm telling myself. So what do I do? You know, I hold myself to, as you mentioned earlier, this ridiculously high standard of perfection that will never be met. And then if I'm holding myself to that, what does that mean for everybody else? I'm holding them to the same unrealistic standard. So I think a lot of that comes from fear. What do you think about that? You're the expert here. Well, Kim, I think that is exactly why my very first answer to the thought of if I could have a do-over, what could I do over? My thought was my internal life, my internal practices, because as I have gotten more secure in who I am and taking better care of myself in sort of that wholeness of who I am, the the less that fear and the scarcity thinking and the control and the people pleasing comes out and the more centered I am and the better I'm able to lead, which is why for me, I believe that that is really the foundation of where we lead from is being able to make sure that we ourselves are flourishing and that we're taking care of ourselves and that that has a direct impact on the teams we lead and the cultures that we're a part of. Perfect. You've kind of gotten into some of these stumbling blocks that we we ourselves encounter through our career or that we watch others trip up over them. And that I think you talked about this, you know, the self-awareness and blind spots. Can you tell us about this? You made a note about the Jahari's window, which is, I think some people may not know about. What is, tell us more about that. Sure. So the theory behind Jahari's window is that we all have things that we don't know that we don't know about ourselves. And that particularly in a leadership realm or in a team that you may be working with. And I I should clarify, Kim, that when I say leader, I believe all of us have spaces in which we are leaders. So this isn't just about having perhaps a formal title or a formal position, but that we all have people and places and spaces that we're influencing and leading in. And typically the people around us are super familiar with our Jahari's window, that that area or that thing that we do or the way that we approach particular situations that we don't know that we don't know we do that. So I think that the, the hard work is to actually say, I want to know what I don't know about myself. And so I'm going to seek out that input and that feedback, and then I'm going to do the hard work to try to address it. That has been a journey for me. I I was so insecure early on and so thin-skinned as a result of that, that getting any of that feedback stung so bad that I just, I would shut down. And it tended to put me into a stance of, uh, I, I had a colleague once, Kim, we were working through a scenario and he looked at me and he said, why do you always have to be such a know-it-all? <gasps> oh. And it hit me both in my head and my heart. And I thank him to this day. He knows I, I thank him all the time for this because it was that moment that I thought, where is that? He's right. I'm I'm always kind of defending my position. I'm always kind of coming back as though, oh yeah, no, I know that. 
And I thought, where is that coming from? And interestingly enough, it was coming from, you know, really this, this, this sense of lack. And I had to understand why I had that and where that was coming from. And once I was able to start to work through that, it became no less comfortable, but a little easier to say to my teams, tell me where I need to improve. Mm -hmm. And by the way, if I'm leading a meeting and I shut you down because I can be pretty passionate and I can be pretty driven and I can shut ideas down. Uh, I would like you to either in the meeting or after the meeting, come to me and say, you did it. Hmm. And I would like us to have a really open conversation about where Kamara's Jahari's window, rough edge behaviors are coming out. And it is no easier for me to hear that feedback today than it was when I first started. But I do believe that I'm better and my teams are healthier as a result of it. Oh my gosh. I just love you so much. You are so awesome. You, I love that. Um, the feedback and empowering someone on your team to say, listen, I want you to, you tell me, you give me the signal, you give me the sign when I'm doing it. And you're reminding me of a quote I just read yesterday. Average people do not want to be coached. Good people want to be coached. Great people want the truth. And there you go. You, that's a great example of don't just sugarcoat and don't just throw um, that that kind of what's it called? What's the saying say? You know, flattery. Yeah, don't flattery. Oh, you did a great job, Kamara. Great job, Kamara. Right. Great job. Okay, uh, get real. Tell me one thing I could do better. Well, you did the thing. And for my the Johari window, I when I was first told, I've been told many things that I do that was kind of like the throat punches to me. But the one was because I'm such an extrovert, I I like want to be all up on people and I'm a close talker. That's what I've also been told many, many times on the Zoom meetings. People are like, Kim, you might want to sit back further from your camera because like we see your nostrils and we see your brain. And I'm like, but I just want to crawl into there and like hug on people and love on people. And But when some, my staff person told me, and I was working at Penn State, we had, had we're having some kind of social mixer or something. And she actually pulled me aside and said, Kim, you got to step back. And I said, what are you talking about? She's like, you are getting too close to people. And I said, what are, you, what are you talking about? She's like, don't you notice that when you start talking to people and you creep closer that they're backing up? And I said, oh my gosh, no, I had no idea. She said, you're freaking some people out. And I was so embarrassed because to me, I, that when I'm, I just want to, I, I'm, I, and I'm a close talker, I guess. I'm just yeah. talking to say, you're a close talker. And so that kind of thing, I never knew that about myself, that it could be, not only was it in someone's personal space, but for people who have different predispositions and, and personality yeah. preferences and introverts, like I was literally, um, they felt like I was looming over them and it was very inappropriate. And I took it, you know, it was hard. And I still, to this day, will be very mindful of, am I standing too close? And so those that's so important of knowing and discovering the things that we don't know about ourselves that others do. And that takes again, back to courage and the truth, because I yeah. love what you said, it's no easier. I mean, people to this day will still tell me, Kim, you're steamrolling. You got that edge to your voice. You got the tone, you got the eye roll going. And I'm like, I know, I know. I even feel it when I'm doing it. I can't stand it. <laughs> I'm still apologizing to you know, people after meetings in the, the same way that I did eight years ago, you know, I think now I'm just far more aware. And I think I am more authentic in my desire to change the longer that I do this. I think probably at the start, I was just like, all right, well, some people don't like that. I can be kind of strong. And now it's realizing, Ooh, mm, that behavior actually isn't even getting you the outcome you want, let alone building the relationships you want. But even if we if we couch everything through an outcome goal-oriented perspective, as we like to do in academic medicine, the not addressing your rough edges, if you will, does not, it just doesn't get you the outcomes that you're looking for. And the more that I have authentically entered into relationship with my teams, the more vulnerable, vulnerable I've been, the harder they have worked for me, uh, and the more we have gotten accomplished. And that is a powerful motivator as well. You're making me think of this book, What Got You Here Will Get You There by Marshall so Smith. I mean, it's 
that's exactly what resonates with me. You're saying that it's sometimes hard when we talk about, you know, in our leadership programs, working with faculty to help them look at themselves through a different lens, because they'll say to you, you'll say, you're telling me in this 360 or this feedback, or that I'm getting some feedback that I'm this, that, and the other, but guess what? Being this, that, and the other got me here. I am a fill in the blank, MD, top rated surgeon, generate the most RVUs. I have, you know, a thousand grants. I got 1500 publications and you're telling me that I got to change. Come on. The objective evidence shows that. But what you're pointing out is, yes, well, what got you here? It may not get you to the next place. And how's that working out for you? When you just got done starting up this conversation with you've got this turnover, you can't find good people, people are complaining about you, you don't understand the climate, the lab has changed. Maybe it is time to rethink uh, how we arrive. So such important points. Hey, Kamara, let's talk about um, uh, your decision-making process. And if you want to kind of go into how this, your thinking has evolved over the career. And um, I don't want to... Um, keep people going too long here because obviously you and I can talk for a long time, but a couple of nuggets about a process of decision-making and um, some parting thoughts for people. Well, as I was just alluding to in my Jahari's window conversation, I am a driver. So there are a lot of different frameworks that we use uh, in the professional realm to describe ourselves and who we are. One that I've used quite a bit over the years is the DISC profile, D-I-S-C. And it is, it is like many others, it's a little bit more work-oriented than some of the others that you go through, which is why I've leaned into it. And in that, I'm a D. And a D basically means that you run fast and you make decisions quickly. Oftentimes, you will find Ds in higher-level leadership roles. And it means also that I don't need a ton of data points to make a decision and that I prefer high level summaries. So if Kim, I've asked you to pull something together for me, I don't need you to give me every detail of how you got to the decision. Tell me your recommendation. Let me ask a couple of questions and then away we go. So the the thing that is, so there's pluses and minuses to that as we can all imagine. And depending on the styles you have around you, and I always recommend you should have all styles around you uh, to, to have the best outcome. You know, there, there are different ways that that is going to rub people right or wrong. And so uh, I don't have to have it all figured out to go forward. And I'll be honest with you, particularly in the context of medicine, I think that has been part of, of the success that I've had in, in moving things forward. Um, I've been able to be privileged to be part of a lot of initiatives and culture change uh, over the years. And I have found that in our environment, no one really wants to be told what to do. No one is actually interested in you coming in and saying, I have found the solution, do it now. But rather we operate in an environment in which people want to make sure that their voice can be heard, that their context is understood, and that there is some flexibility for adaptation to particular contexts. And so wherever possible, I've tried to do that. And I think because I don't have it all fully baked before I get started, it has allowed for that agility and flexibility for things to morph, whether it be big, huge culture change initiatives that we're doing or me working with an individual through a, through a particular um, scenario. So my decision-making process is I want to have enough to be smart, but I'm not going to worry that I don't have it all figured out. And I'm going to keep learning in an iterative fashion uh, all the way along because I believe the voice and the autonomy of the individual is so important. And I want that to inform my, my decision. Oof. You could... Gosh, you could give a cold class on this. I just was looking at the DISC style as you're talking. Just for context for the um, folks listening, D is for dominance, I is for influence, S for steadiness, and C for conscientiousness, right? Am I looking at the right thing? You got it. Mara. That's some great advice. What else um, about your decision-making process that you want to share or um, how you, you've evolved this, you know, your thinking over over time in your career? You know, I think that we've covered a lot of it already, Kim. I, I, what, I would, what I would say is that what I am learning, what I have learned and what I am learning is that the power is in always learning. I think that when I was earlier in my career, 
I envisioned that there must have been this point in which these people who had achieved so much ahead of me, like realized the wisdom they had and they learned everything and they had it all figured out. And I think what I'm realizing now on my journey is that there isn't an all figured out point. There's an always figuring it out point. And there is a freedom and a wisdom, I think, that comes in embracing that uh, there, there isn't a moment in which you will know everything as a leader or you will know the exact right step you should take in your career, uh, but rather it is a process of learning and figuring it out. And I think that is how I have evolved. And that moves me away from know-it-all to being really comfortable that, oh, I don't know it all. And guess what? I'm never going to. So let's together explore and come to a place where we decide what the next right thing is to do. And then after that, we'll we'll figure out the next one. Whew. Well, folks, come on, right? Kamara Ellison, doesn't KNN, the Kern National Network, didn't they hit the jackpot with you? And you, you know, this is what, what Kamara is saying is this is on top of a 25 plus year career, an MBA, and now getting an EDD. Uh, this is that tip. Yeah, absolutely. Continuing to learn and always looking and acknowledging that we have so much more to learn. That is such, you're right. It's such a relief. It's a, the burden is lifted when we do come to a realization that I'm never going to know it all. And isn't this exciting to think that I might meet somebody around the corner in five minutes and I'll learn something from them. Uh, yeah. You're just, you're just so, so great. I'm so happy for you. You know, you are such an important leader in our field and I appreciate you taking the time to be on with us at the faculty factory podcast friends. I hope um, I know you've learned a lot from this and um Go back and listen to it again, because there's a lot of juicy stuff here. So thank you again, Kamara Ellison. You are great. Thank you, Kim. Such a pleasure to be here. All right, folks. See you next time on the Faculty Factory Podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. The mission of the Faculty Factory is to build and support a community of leaders in faculty development who share tools, resources, wisdom, and encouragement in service to our faculty members, schools, and institutions. We encourage you to go to facultyfactory.org to find out more, get in touch with me, ask me any questions. Maybe you want to be interviewed on the podcast. Thanks for tuning in to Faculty Factory Podcast. We'll see you next time. The Faculty Factory Podcast and website is sponsored by the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine Office of Faculty. For more information, visit facultyfactory.org.